0: Amazing. Woo. All righty, Virginia, we won this thing. For the first time since 2009, a Republican won the race for governor in Virginia. Glenn Youngkin won against former Governor Terry McAuliffe. And for Democrats, this was a huge blow. Together we will change
1: the trajectory of this commonwealth. And friends, we are going to start that transformation on day one.
0: Today, we look at the state of our politics one year after the 2020 election. It's this moment of congressional gridlock, internal party divisions, and questions about the continued power of former President Trump. And that all came into play on Tuesday, with everything from governor's races in Virginia and New Jersey to mayoral elections in Boston and Minneapolis. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, November 3rd. Normally, these off-cycle elections don't attract that much attention. But this year, the results are taking on new meaning. Could I just get your name and then just how
1: you're feeling and if you're comfortable sharing who you're voting for, why you voted for them?
2: I mean, we dressed our son
1: in red, white, and blue. We are excited to vote. We are hopeful that America can pull it together. And so playing our part in this is exciting. And speaking to
2: all of our friends...
0: Ahead of Election Day, politics producer Arjun Singh went to Northern Virginia to hear from people in line at the polls. Voters said that they were motivated by Trump.
1: Youngkin has been compared in a lot of ways to Trump and having that analogy between the two is very powerful and very persuasive, at least to me. I'm very concerned about the attachment to Trump and what that could mean.
0: These kinds of conversations with voters are partly what's worrying Democrats right now. The party is looking out at this year's Republican victories and seeing difficulties for the midterm elections in 2022 and the potential return of Trump in 2024.
1: What is it about the Republican candidate that worries you when it comes to democracy?
0: His affiliation with Trump. What about you, sir?
1: The same thing. Uh, January 6th said it all in terms of Republicans in the Senate. As well
0: as the of course, no one election holds the key to knowing what will happen in the 2022 midterms or 2024 presidential election. But these races do tell us something else. They give us the snapshot of our country one year after a bitter and caustic election, a major pandemic, and one of the largest protest movements for racial justice in our country's history. So that's why today Arjun caught up with Sean Sullivan, one of the Post national politics reporters. —
2: I think Republicans for a long time have been trying to find a winning formula during the Trump presidency. When he was on the ballot, turnout tended to be high, which tended to work to Republicans' advantage. But when he was not on the ballot, turnout tended to be low. And then after he left office, you saw a debate break out in the party. You saw some Republicans like Congresswoman Liz Cheney, for example, who you know were very, very open about breaking from Trump and criticizing him. On the other side, you saw people who remained very, very staunch supporters of Trump. And so there's been this kind of conversation going on in the Republican Party. And I think the takeaway a lot of Republicans have from Glenn Youngkin's win in Virginia is that there is sort of a tightrope walk that if you do it effectively, can, can work.
1: How did Glenn Youngkin portray himself to voters in Virginia? What kinds of issues did he focus on to walk that tightrope, like you said?
2: You know, it's interesting. When you look at the way he talked about Trump in the primary, in the Republican primary, and the way that he talked about him in the general election, it was very, very different. Of course, in a Republican primary, you were talking about a universe of voters that on the whole is going to be a lot more supportive of Trump. And so there was a lot more praise for Trump in the Republican primary. Once he became the Republican nominee, however, we stopped hearing about that. And he ran a lot of ads where, you know, if you were just sort of coming into the state out of the blue, not really following the race, you might not even know what party Glenn Youngkin belongs to or what his ideology is. He ran a lot of, by design, non-political ads. So I got a job when I was 15
1: to help out, washing dishes at a diner in Virginia Beach. I worked my way up to flipping eggs, but when I wasn't doing that, I was here practicing countless hours every day, sharpening my will to win.
2: He talked about playing basketball where he portrayed himself as sort of a suburban dad. And I think the design there was to not alienate a lot of the suburban moderates that he knew he was going to need ultimately to win that race. And One thing I heard a lot about Youngkin was that he hammered home
1: this issue of education and the rights of parents to have a say in what gets taught to their children. When it gets down to policy levels, what were some of the policy differences
2: between Youngkin and McAuliffe in this election? Well, there certainly were policy differences between them, and we saw some of these things come out at debates. McAuliffe-supported vaccine mandates, it was very clear that Glenn Youngkin did not support vaccine mandates, abortion, economic issues. There were clearly policy debates. The schools issue, what Youngkin did effectively was tap into a few different strands and distill that into a larger argument. And his larger argument was basically this, that Democrats and the government don't have your back, parents, I do. And so he tapped into concerns people have About critical race theory. He tapped into concerns people had about the fact that schools were closed for a a long time at the beginning of the pandemic, masking in schools, which became a divisive debate. And he tied all those things together to advance this broader argument. And when I talked to Democrats about this, they said, look, you know, when Republicans talk about critical race theory, we don't think that is going to be a terribly potent issue. It was not taught in schools in Virginia. But it's the totality of all this stuff and what's happened over the past year. And he was able to tap into that. And then he ran that ad with that soundbite from McAuliffe in that debate. But I'm not going to let parents come into schools bill. and actually you take books out and make their own decision. You vetoed it. So, yeah, you vetoed I stopped it. the bill that I don't think parents should be telling schools what they should teach. And they really, really started to hammer that home. And the clearest sign that that was working was that McAuliffe himself had to respond, basically issue a response ad, which suggested that that was moving voters. And now we're already seeing Republicans beyond Virginia saying, look, this education issue, schools, parenting, the idea that Youngkin perpetuated that he's got the backs of parents and the other side doesn't, they feel like that can be a potent argument. And I've heard from Democrats who say, okay, look, we need to come up with a better response to this because it, it clearly worked in Youngkin's favor in Virginia.
1: And one thing when I at least went out to Northern Virginia to talk to some Democratic voters that seemed to be motivating them were a lot about national politics, this thing that's a fear that Republican-led states would bring in restrictive voting and abortion laws. Some Democratic voters said that a vote for Youngkin would essentially bring in those kinds of laws into Virginia. Were those legitimate concerns when it came to Youngkin? And- After what we saw last night, you know, with over three million votes cast, does it seem like that is a strategy that does motivate Democrats to come out? Or is that something that they might have to rethink
2: going into the midterms? As far as Youngkin and his record, I mean, the proof will be when he's when he's governor. And one issue that came up at a televised debate was the issue of of abortion and whether Youngkin as governor would pursue the kind of restrictive laws that we have seen Republicans in Texas, for example, pursue. I think the Texas bill
1: is one that is the standard right now that we're all looking at. And I would not sign the Texas bill today. As I've said through this entire campaign, I am pro-life. I believe in exceptions in the case of rape and incest and when the life of the mother is in jeopardy. But the Texas bill also, also is unworkable and confusing.
2: As for Democrats and motivation for their base... I do think it's something of an open question right now, because I think there was a belief going into this election that two things were true. One, democratic distaste for Donald Trump was very, very high. And so that's why we heard McAuliffe over and over again try to tie Young to Trump.
1: He's a Trump wannabe. He's endorsed by Donald Trump three times. times. Division, just like Donald Trump, um, and that's why disgusting. And then Donald Trump We're calls on. into the rally and says, "Glenn Youngkin will do whatever I want him to do."
2: He said I mean, so much of nuts. the reason Last night that he's Clinton. running for governor. His quote is because of Donald Trump. But there was also a sense in the Democratic Party that I picked up on that you know it's not always believable when Democrats try to tie every candidate to Trump, and it may not have worked in this case. And so. Whether that is the focal point, whether other national issues that they talked about become focal points, I think is an open question moving forward. You know, we saw
1: 3 million votes in Virginia, more than 2 million in New Jersey. Are these big numbers for an off-year election?
2: Yeah, these are really big numbers. And look at 2017, the year after Trump was elected. There was a lot of energy in the electorate. A lot of people came out to vote because they did not like Trump and they wanted to send a message to the Republican Party. Well, more people voted in this election than in that election, more people voted in this election than the 2013 gubernatorial election in Virginia. So these are big numbers, and I think bigger numbers than some strategists had anticipated. There was this sort of line of thinking among some in the Democratic Party that, look, Republicans can win in low turnout scenarios where, hey, if our base isn't motivated in a state like Virginia— then we have problems. I think what scares a lot of Democrats and what's scary to them about this result is that this was not that scenario. This was the opposite of that. And the Republicans still won.
0: After the break, what Tuesday's election tells us about the divisions among Democrats, especially when it comes to police reform. We'll be right back.
2: What about President Biden? I mean, when he ran for president, he
1: ran as a unity candidate in his victory speech. He said it was time to turn down the temperature. But what about his role within the Democratic Party? Is he still seen as this unifying force that can bring people together?
2: Yeah, I think it's more of an open question at this point whether he will continue to be seen that way. You know, for a long time, he was somebody who prided himself on his ability to campaign all across the country sometimes in places where other Democrats nationally were just not welcome at all, places like North Dakota and Alabama. But the reality is right now he has a low approval rating. He campaigned twice for Terry McAuliffe in Virginia. And if he continues to be as unpopular as he is right now, a lot of Democrats are going to have to make a tough decision. Do they view him as more helpful or do they view him as more harmful? And if they view him as the latter, what does that mean? Does that mean they try to break from him? Uh, on certain issues? Does that mean they just don't campaign with them? These are really, really difficult decisions that a lot of candidates might have to make given where we are in the political climate right now.
1: And another interesting place is New Jersey, where Governor and incumbent Phil Murphy is in a tight race against Republican Jack Citarelli. And there, it seems like Citarelli ran a similar campaign to Youngkin, which was this issues-based campaign. They were running on things like education and vaccine mandates and high taxes, whereas Democrats seem to be talking about bigger picture things and the return of Donald Trump. Is that a fair assessment of what we saw in these governor's races?
2: Well, I think what we saw from the Republicans was an effort to tap into this larger sentiment that things are not going in a positive direction in the eyes of a lot of people. And I think that's where the issues come up, is that they tap into that sentiment, and then they talk about things like high prices and inflation or education. Even Democrats acknowledge that in their data, when they look at polling, there is this feeling in the country, fair or not, that the country has not been moving, at least lately, in, in a good direction. And you know, as a candidate, once you're able to sort of tap into the mood of voters, they start to listen to you. They start to listen to the specific things that you say, the issues that you talk about. You've caught their attention. And that's sort of half the battle in a way. And so I think they were able to do that. And then once they drew them in, were able to campaign on these issues in a way that resonated with those voters. Police reform was
1: an issue in several mayor's races, and particularly in Minneapolis, voters even had the opportunity to vote whether to replace the police department with a brand new public safety agency. They ultimately voted no on that question, but incumbent mayor Jacob Frey really ran on this tax saying that he did not agree with the concept of defund the police and that his Lead In yesterday's election was a statement from the people of Minneapolis that they also didn't want, quote, hashtags to dictate their politics. So how did those differences that we see within the party on
2: police reform play out yesterday? And is there a general agreement within the party on police reform? There certainly isn't a consensus between the two parties and you could argue definitely that there's not a, even a consensus within the democratic party. We saw on Capitol Hill Republicans and Democrats try to come together, try to strike some sort of deal, they negotiated for a long time and in the end they came up empty. What is happening I think is and you know it isn't happening everywhere, but there has certainly been a detectable shift in some parts of the Democratic Party over the last year or so in favor of candidates who talk about public safety, who talk about, you know, law and order, who talk about fighting crime, in a, in a different and more aggressive way than some of the more liberal elements of the party. And you look at New York, right, which just elected a new mayor as well, Eric Adams, who ran in a primary where Democrats had a lot of different choices for candidates, but he was seen as more of the law and order candidate. And so there is certainly a sentiment I hear in the Democratic Party that the party needs to embrace a tougher, message on crime. They need to demonstrate to voters, hey, here's what we're doing to keep you safe. Here's what we're doing to help police departments. And it's a different overall mood than we heard in the party in the summer of 2020 after George Floyd was killed. And so I think there's still, uh, the Democrats are still at a moment of transition on this, but there are certainly those who believe, politically speaking, that Defund the police was a very harmful slogan for the Democratic Party and for a lot of Democratic candidates uh, because it alienated a lot of swing voters that they would otherwise be able to win. And that if the party is to achieve success in the future, they need to embrace more uh, of a public safety message. How exactly they do that in the future, I think, is sort of undetermined. But we are certainly seeing a bit of a a transition period, I think, overall in the mood of the party. So we're seeing
1: Democrats still sort of struggling to figure out exactly what maybe their messaging inside the party is. We saw some surprises, particularly in New Jersey, and we saw Glenn Youngkin really take on Tara McAuliffe and win in Virginia. Would you say these races were a validation for a Republican strategy that was employed in New Jersey and Virginia? And what are the lessons Democrats could take away from these going into the midterms?
2: Well, I think one, it's an open question whether Democrats are even going to agree about what the problem was in these elections, let alone what the solutions might be, right? We've seen a lot of debate in the Democratic Party about what direction it should go. So I think number one, time will tell if the party will even unite around a common idea, a common explanation of what went wrong and what needs to change. I mean, some Democrats look at this and they say, look, these are the historical headwinds that you usually see when a new party takes power, a new president takes power. You tend to see a backlash. You tend to see angry voters on the other side be the ones who are most motivated to show up in these elections. But I think what makes this Tuesday's election Extra sort of scary and, and more of a warning shot for Democrats is that what we saw was sort of across the board. We didn't just see it in Virginia. As you mentioned, we saw it in New Jersey. We saw a similar thing in, in some other states that were holding elections, the shift from the suburbs, which during the Trump years were the cornerstone of the Democratic coalition, back toward Republicans. And we saw the conservative base come out in really, really big Numbers. And so I think that's what's really, really alarming right now to Democrats. But again, it's really an open question about whether they're even going to agree on what went wrong and what they need to do now to make it right.
0: Sean Sullivan is a national politics reporter for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Arjun Singh and Emma Talkoff, it was mixed by Ted Muldoon. If you have found our reporting valuable in understanding this political moment, it's only because of you, our subscribers. To become a subscriber and support our reporting in this podcast, go to washingtonpost.com/slash-subscribe. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from the Washington Post.